Praise the one who breaks the darkness with a liberating word. In Jesus' name, the one who has given us freedom from our worst nightmares, my dear friends. I got to ask uh, to all you rock and roll fans out there, are there any Ted Nugent fans here today? Go ahead and raise your hand. You can admit it. I kind of I like uh, the Nuge. You got to be at least as old as a Gen Xer, or probably better to be a boomer, because uh, he's been around a little while. But what, uh, what kind of intrigues me, or one of the things intrigues me about Nugent is he's so right-wing. I mean, every other uh, musician out of the West Coast is totally left-wing and into progressive causes. And Nuge is, is like a madman hunter. He's, he's really big with the Second Amendment crowd. I also kind of got, always got a kick out of what he decided to title one of his live albums. And um, I should give a prize if anybody can come up with that because it's a little bit obscure, but I, I've, it's kind of stuck in my head. Do you know what he called his live album? It was put together from a string of his live performances when he was on one of his many tours. And he named the album Intensities in Ten Cities. Get it? Isn't that kind of a cool title? I just got a kick out of it as a play on words. Intensities, in other words, massive emotional blowouts in ten cities. I just thought that was kind of a cool title. And it's actually what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, actually, not in ten cities, but in the region of the ten cities. That was the nickname that the ancient world gave to the northeast corner of where the people of Israel were living in New Testament times, when it had been annexed into the Roman Empire. It really was a frontier. In fact, it, in some ways, the northern part of Perea, the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, were not even all that Jewish, because when the the Jews were hauled off into captivity for the second time into the Babylonian captivity. Only a small number came back. Some scholars estimate only 10% of the Jewish people who were deported actually ever did make their return. So they were concentrated in the bigger province of Judea in the south, and there was a colony in the north in Galilee on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, but the eastern side was very Greek. And new towns had been planted in the years, in the centuries just before Christ was born. But those were Greek cities, and they were laid out in Greek style. They had amphitheaters and racetracks, just the kind of things that the Greeks liked. And then when the Romans annexed it into their empire, they continued to have a very cosmopolitan vibe. Uh, Greeks, Greek was the primary language spoken there. And these ten cities got to be known as the nickname. They, they called it in Greek the Decapolis, which is just Greek for Decapolis, just means ten cities. And that is where one of the most extraordinary events in the Bible ever took place. Jesus met with a cutter. And by that, I don't mean a small, fast boat or I don't mean a sleigh that you can drive on the ice. I mean what you know about what cutters are today. Someone who because of extreme emotional anxiety and pain does physical harm 
to himself or herself. It's an extraordinary story which has some puzzles that are unanswerable in it. And I will have to express the limits of my Bible understanding with you today, hoping that it doesn't diminish your fondness for me or your respect for me. But sometimes even a pastor has to say, I don't know the answer to this. We have to wait, have to wait and see. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible or get it on your mobile device and turn to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to the ten cities to see an intensity, an intense story in the Decapolis, an area where the Greeks probably outnumbered the Jews, perhaps by a significant margin. The chapter begins, Jesus and his disciples, as they often did, were using one of the fishermen disciples' boats, and they went across the lake to a region of the Gerasenes. Gerasa, today called Jeresh, is 35 or so miles inland, but it was the dominant city of that area and might have given its name to the whole region, kind of like a county. Like, you know, there's New York City and New York State. And if I say I'm going to New York, you don't know for sure if I mean the state or the city until I explain some more. Uh, Garris uh, City is not meant here because this event is going to take place uh, right along the coast of the lake. In fact, there's a, there are bluffs overlooking the coast. Those bluffs are also pockmarked with caves and the people, the inhabitants of that region long ago found a great use for those caves. They turned them into mausoleums, burial places for their dead. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Uh, Matthew's gospel, which has a parallel account, and by the way, so does Luke. The story is so powerful. The first three gospels all tell it. A, each from us with slightly different details. Matthew says there actually was another man there too, although one of them did all the talking, and that's the one Mark concentrates on. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. That, he was living in those caves. He had become so antisocial and so dangerous to himself and others that he had to live apart like, a, like an outcast in that cave area and fend for himself, somehow scavenging, scrounging food to eat. No one could bind him anymore. They tried putting him in protective custody as best they could, and nobody could subdue him, not even with a chain. He'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. The demons within him gave him, as it were, supernatural strength. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. I don't know if you know much about cutters. I don't know much, but I know a little. And I've done some reading on it because it's so intriguing to me because I had to scratch that itch. Why would people do physical harm to themselves? Why would anybody take a sharp knife and put cuts on his or her body? Why would anyone take a flame and burn one's skin till it hurt? 
And there aren't any really great answers because I think even people who are driven to be cutters don't fully understand what's going on. But what some people live in so much emotional pain day after day, hour after hour, that changing their pain to f merely physical pain actually by comparison brings relief. Some people are that miserable on their insides that, that the sharp pain of a, a blade cutting into their skin and drawing blood actually gives them some release and it gets their mind off their emotional pain and they can concentrate on merely the physical pain. That may not make sense to many of you, but it does make sense to some people who are really depressed. It's involved with self-loathing as well. People who don't like themselves. It's a way that they can express their misery. And the spurt of blood actually shows that they've expressed themselves. They can let some of that pain out. They often feel very conflicted and guilty about it, though. Cutters usually conceal their cutting and don't want anybody to know. And in fact, they're ashamed of it as well. And that only makes their self-loathing worse until they do it again. And for that brief moment, they get a little bit of relief from all that emotional pain. This poor man with his friend who was tormented in the same way will concentrate just on the, the one who did the talking in, as, as Mark leads us. Was so miserable and so tormented by Satan that he cut his body. Not that he was trying to commit suicide, but so that the physical pain could relieve some of the mental pain. Let's continue with the story. He sees Jesus from a distance, and he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And because it's the demons doing the talking, utilizing his vocal cords, this isn't worship. This is fear. This is not worship of a savior, the talk coming out of this man's mouth. This is the terror of someone who now knows something really bad is going to happen to me. And the demons inside him are going to beg Jesus for a lighter sentence from what they fear is coming. So he shouts out at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Isn't that something? The demons know exactly who Jesus is. Swear to God you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. There's question number one for me. I've got at least five really difficult questions. Why would God allow one of his children to be physically occupied by a demon, or in this case, multiple demons. And I don't have an answer for you, and I'm not going to insult your intelligence by trying to come up with a, with a half answer, except to say we're all tormented. We all have demon possession. Inside each of us, there lurks a sinner, a, mini a miniature version of Satan himself. When Adam and Eve chose no longer to be filled with the Spirit, 
and listened to Satan, rebelled against God and defied him. They, they so craved knowledge and equality with God that they took the risk of inviting this evil power within them. And for a sickening moment, they probably liked it because the fruit was beautiful. God undoubtedly made it extremely tasty. And all of a sudden, they knew the mad thrill of evil, of rebelling against God. You know that thrill, don't you? Because in some of the times when you've busted loose in rebellion against God, there was a thrill. Going off and shouting and abusing somebody else for just a moment <clears throat> has an adrenaline rush, doesn't it? Taking something that doesn't belong to you and enriching yourself, and when you get away with it, has a bit of a rush. Ha, 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 ha. I just pulled a fast one. Nobody knows. I got away with it. God also wants the human race to know that you chose this and our sinful flesh and our actions of rebellion against God join us to the original rebellion. It's called original sin. We are there with Adam and Eve making the choice with them. We jointly share responsibility and can't point our way out of this. Why would God allow someone physically to be taken over by a demon? That's something that I don't think any of us has ever experienced, where we lost control of our bodies and the, the demons were able to take over our vocal cords and make words come out that our brain doesn't mean, as though we're in the control room of our own body and we're tied up and gagged in the captain's chair and there's a demon operating the controls. Why would God allow that? And I, I don't have any better answer than that this was part of the curse of sin that we asked for and had no idea how bad it really was. Jesus asked him, what's your name? I don't know why he asked that either. Honestly, I, I have some guesses, but I don't know. What, is it, what does it matter what he's named? What does that have to do with anything? Why, why didn't he just throw the demons into hell? Luke's gospel says that demons were pleading with Jesus not to be thrown into the abyss. See, we think that hell is kind of a fun place. In cartoons and popular stories, hell is a fun place where the devil goes around cackling and seems to be enjoying himself. He's got his pitchfork and his pointy tail and his little horns, and the demons float around laughing and giggling and having a great time. Hell is a place of torment for Satan and the demons, too. Their ankles are chained there, and their roasting has already begun. They're miserable. And they enjoyed running around on earth causing havoc. Why didn't Jesus throw them there immediately? Why does he care what they're named? What does this have to do with anything? I, I, don't, I don't know. If you know it, please tell me after church, okay? Because uh, I got second service to go through, and I'd love to be able to tell them I now know the answer. He said, my name is Legion, because we're that many. Somehow there were thousands of these spirit monsters crammed into the poor body of this man who was slowly destroying himself with the abuse he was dishing out to himself. 
He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. That part I get. But here's another one of my questions. Why is Jesus having a conversation with demons? Why didn't he just say, out! Back to hell with you. I wonder if you know the answer to that, because I don't. He's chatting with the demons, and he had been repeatedly commanding them, and they wouldn't leave right away. How could they resist Jesus, even for a second? I don't know the answer to that either, except that somehow this conversation played out for the advancement of God's plan. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, you know, these caves where the tombs were, were in, in the bluffs. The demons begged Jesus, send us to the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Why? What's the deal about going into pigs? Huh. You think the demons would at least say, let us go into some other person. But maybe Jesus would not let them go into another person. So as an alternative to having to send their horrible, mean presence back down to the pit of hell, he allows them to occupy animals. But isn't that cruel? Animals are, you know, they're not as valuable as people, but they're still sentient creatures. They're animals. God wants us to take care of our critters. Animal abusers are sinning. They're hurting God's creatures. Why would they want to go in the pigs? Did they think that that would somehow give them liberation? Why did Jesus allow them to go into the pigs and hurt those animals? Those animals, 2,000 of them as we find out in the next verses, are a huge asset. That flocks of animals were like bank accounts. This was somebody's business. Some farmer might have had to borrow a ton of money and this was his equity. These, the, this livestock was his business. And Jesus is going to allow somebody's business to be totally ruined. Why? Were there not other alternatives? Couldn't you have made your points via teaching? Why was it necessary to destroy someone's capital investment in his business? Uh, there is a, a half explanation for that one, by the way. And one theory is that the owner of that herd of pigs was Jewish and had no business owning pigs because pigs were unclean animals according to the kosher food rules of the Old Testament. And so this could be construed as a rebuke to somebody who was involved in a line of business he had no business being in. Uh, still, Jesus could have gone and talked to the guy if Jesus didn't like his ownership of the herd. Um, if, if I knew that, if I was there, I would not get out a gun and start shooting pigs. I would go in and talk to the owner and say, hey, dude, you know you really should not be raising pigs. You're not supposed to have anything to do with unclean animals. Let's go to the market and sell them off, and you should be investing in cattle instead, or sheep or goats. But why kill the pigs? And then why did the demons make the pigs commit suicide? I, I don't quite get it. If they... Weren't they afraid then that they would get sucked back into hell? Yet one more stumper where I, in all honesty, have to tell you, I don't know. I just know it happened. 
But see, these aren't really the main points. These funky details had a meaning, perhaps more clearly, at the time, and perhaps there were other things Jesus said and other relationships he had when these details were made clear and it made more sense. And I think God is smiling a little bit at us right now, thinking, you know, you don't know everything. Don't, don't pretend that you know everything that's going on. So let's concentrate on what we do know. As the evil spirits went out of the man, suddenly he was possessed of his right mind. He dressed himself properly, and instead of raging around, needing restraints, he was able to have a conversation with Jesus. The people of that coastal region, instead of worshiping the Son of God and rejoicing that he had power over the very demons of hell, were afraid of Jesus. His power made them afraid, not grateful. His power drove them away from him instead of drawing them to him. So this is not the response of faith. This is not the actions. These are not the actions of believers that we can be sure of. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave. They're afraid of him. Get out. You're scaring us. Get out. They recognize neither their sin nor the fact that the demons are everywhere. But a fact that you cannot deny is that the demons do not come to make our lives better. They come to destroy. Satan and his demons despise you. They loathe you when Satan whispers his temptations to you and the demons whisper to you. They pretend to be your friend, but they hate you. They're just trying to bring pain into your life. They lie to you and then laugh at you when you fall for their lies. Eve thought Satan gave great advice when she listened to him for the first time. And it brought misery onto the human race, including the events we're hearing about. But Jesus comes to bring healing and life. Jesus is our friend, even when we don't always understand what he's doing. The people wanted Jesus to leave. They were afraid of him and wanted to go back to life as normal without Jesus around. His miracle did not make them want to listen to his teachings, get out. And so he left. When the gospel is despised, God will take it away. However, there was one man who now had a new life who was extremely grateful. He wanted to join Jesus' merry little band of disciples. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not your role. I've chosen my trainees, but I do have a job for you. I need you to be an evangelist where your former home was. I need you to go back to your family. Let them see you and be restored to them and do this. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and became a super evangelist and told about the intensities in the ten cities of how much Jesus had done for him in the Decapolis. And all the people were amazed. It's not quite the same thing as all, saying all the people came to faith. But I think through that man's testimony, that brought about conversion of people to faith in Christ, which is necessary for your salvation. So here's our takeaways from this incredible story from the intensities. 
in one of the ten cities. Satan really wants to wreck your life. And he probes your vulnerabilities and the soft spots in your brain and heart where he can worm his way in and make it seem like sinning against God's commandments is fulfilling and fun and will make your life better. He lies with every evil, stanky breath coming out of his mouth. Sin always destroys. But Christ has come to set us free. He absorbed in himself everything that God was giving to punish the original rebellions of the human race. And on the Bryn Calfaria, on Mount Calvary, Jesus absorbed in himself the punishment for all of the evil that Satan had wrought and all that you and I had done. And he spoke a word of forgiveness. It is finished means sin is finished and Satan is finished. With his dying, he actually stomped his foot on the serpent who dragged us into this mess in the first place and crushed his head so that he no longer has legal power over you. The sins of your doing and even the sin of your being, your very being, is an offense to God. But because of what Jesus Christ alone did, you now smell good to him, for he speaks a word of mercy. Some of you may clandestinely be cutters. I've read some studies that say that maybe as many as one American in five has done self-harm because of all the mental stress, pain, and self-loathing they're going through. They've chosen to hurt themselves in some way to cause pain to distract them from their emotional pain. Here are words of forgiveness so that you can like yourself again. Because if God likes you, you can stop hating yourself. If God has stopped judging you, you can stop judging yourself. Cutters tend to be extremely self-critical people. You can stop tearing into yourself and calling yourself names. You can stop feeling like a failure. And if God accepts you as you are, you can accept yourself and move on. If God sees good in you, you can see good in yourself. If he's forgiven your sins, you can forgive yourself and let it go, just like a caterpillar sloughing off its old crusty skin and let the butterfly emerge. Jesus loves and accepts you as you are. And he also speaks his forgiving word with power from the Holy Spirit now to make right choices. You don't have to settle for old ways. You can choose to serve him with a new spirit and a new life. And let him cast those demons out of you. One final takeaway, one final challenge. This man was set free, not just now to keep living there in the caves and go about his normal scavenging business of trying to find his next meal, he was restored to his community where he became an advocate for Jesus to help other people find out that there is forgiveness, healing, and strength in the Son of God. 
and all the things that God is doing for you to help you feel good about yourself again, like who you are, and feel like a valuable member of God's team. I don't care what age you are. If you're, uh, if you're a geezer age, uh, even older than me, if you're in the middle part of your life, if you're young and vibrant, or if you're a child, doesn't matter. You have value to God and his plan, and your words matter, and your testimony of Christ really matters. Because surrounding you are miserable people who are full of emotional pain, full of self-doubt, self-loathing, terror of dying, and don't feel anything good is going on in their lives. You can help share the joy you know so that people will look at Christ and see what that man who had been demon-possessed was able to feel, healing and restoration, and could anticipate joyfully a day when we will be freed forever from the, the dreaded temptations of Satan. And even worse than that, the damage you and I can do when we commit sins. This is the joy we look forward to, ultimate freedom. Jesus demonstrates he can do it, Jesus demonstrates. He will do it once for all when he returns. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.